Well, we've been thinking this morning about Pentecost and the fact that the ascension of Jesus was absolutely necessary for Pentecost to happen. And the wonderful thing to remind ourselves is that when we think of the ascension of our Lord, we're thinking about someone who rose from this earth, who had a physical material body and had spent some time with his disciples after the resurrection and they were able to see him and talk with him and touch him and he was so real to them. Well, let me tell you about a class in school one day where the teacher who was giving an art lesson on this particular occasion was wanting her pupils to make a painting about Jesus and what Jesus represented to them, how he would look to them. She showed her pupils different portraits of Jesus and asked them to comment on what they were looking at. Some of the young people thought Jesus looked a bit like a a wimp uh, in most of the paintings that they saw. The artists had very strange names that were as hard to pronounce as many of the uh, foreign football players that you find in Premier League teams. And it was so difficult for them to look at these old paintings and uh, comment on what Jesus was portrayed like in them. Well, after this, the teacher asked them to make their own portrait of Jesus. And this was quite an interesting experiment. Several of the children painted Jesus with a white tunic and sandals on his feet. A little girl called Jenny, well, she pictured Jesus floating about a metre above the ground with a halo around his head. Phil, well, his Jesus was dressed in jeans, a leather jacket, and trainers. And then, of course, when all the class saw what Chang Li Wong had painted, uh, they found it really funny to see a Christ with yellow skin and slit eyes. The laziest pupil in the class was called Sammy, Sammy Thompson. He was known for doing as little as he could in school. He presented the art teacher with a blank page. Nothing on the page at all. Now, the teacher was quite angry with him, and she said, Sammy, what's the meaning of this? Now, Sammy may have been lazy, but he, 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 he wasn't stupid. And his answer did not amuse her in the least. He said, well, Mrs. Smith, people say Jesus was God. So he must be invisible, mustn't he? Hence, a blank page with nothing on it. Smart little boy who got off uh, with doing nothing at all. But what about us? What kind of image do we have of Jesus in our mind's eye. When I was a child at Sunday school, growing up in the 1960s in the church that I went to for Sunday school, a very heavy emphasis was placed on Jesus as God, the divinity of Jesus Christ. And the reason was quite simple. Uh, At that time, there had been such a challenge to the idea of Jesus as God at all. Many people were happy enough to accept Jesus as a real historic person. 
a man who had walked this earth, but very few people were willing to believe that this man born in Palestine 2,000 years earlier could be considered as God or a God. And as a consequence in the church, uh, Christians emphasized Jesus's divinity so much that it obscured his humanity, the fact that he was a man. So the image I grew up with of Jesus was a wee bit unbalanced. For example, as a child, I thought it was no big deal for Jesus to die on a cross because if he was God, then didn't matter much. He couldn't suffer all that much anyway. For me, uh, Jesus was a kind of superman. Or more particularly, as I was growing up, uh, the big uh, uh, character of that time was Captain Scarlet. And I often thought of Jesus in terms of Captain Scarlet. He could die, but then he always came back to life again and he was never really badly hurt, untouched by mere human frailty or infirmity. But my picture of Jesus was far removed from how the Gospels actually portray him. And today I want to look at what one of his closest friends on earth writes about him, the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, who was the Apostle John. So we're going to read some of the words that the Apostle John writes about his dear friend Jesus. We read this in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Take those two notions already together. The Word was God, and the Word became flesh, man. John uh, goes on to say in his first epistle, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. And here he's emphasizing the fact, he's talking about Jesus, and we touched him. He was a material being. He was a physical entity. This we proclaim concerning him, the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, and testify to it, a reality to us. John continues in the same letter, in chapter 4. This is how you recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Now, the context of uh, John's time when he was writing these things enables us to understand why he was placing su such an emphasis on the humanity of Jesus, on the flesh and bloodness of Jesus, if you like. At that time, when John was writing, the early church was faced with a very dangerous heresy, and it was called docetism. You may have heard of a, a broader uh, belief system from that time known as Gnosticism. And docetism was a part of it. And the word uh, docetism comes from a, a Greek word that means to seem or to appear, to look like, but has nothing to do with reality. It's just what seems to be or what appears to be so. And these followers of docetism 
at the time John was alive, believed that physical matter, including the human body, was evil, and only that which was spiritual in nature was good. Therefore, for them, all the acts and sufferings of Jesus' life, including his crucifixion, were mere appearances. They didn't really happen. It was just as if it was a kind of a hologram. Jesus didn't really come in flesh and blood because flesh and blood are evil. Only that which is spiritual is good. So the Docetists consequently denied Christ's resurrection and his ascension into heaven. Because Jesus only ever seemed to be human. He wasn't a real flesh and blood human being. So it was to refute such heresy that the Apostle John wrote his first epistle. And he was not the only New Testament writer to affirm and emphasize Jesus' humanity. The Gospels and Paul's epistles all indicate how human Jesus was and is. Matthew and Luke even give us genealogies of Jesus to show his human lineage. Now, certainly, Jesus was miraculously conceived, but he was actually born just like every one of us. Our sanitized, romantic notions about Christmas hardly resemble reality at all. You've sung it, I'm sure, when you were at school and also in church. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Well, now, if you've come across many babies, you'll find that one hard to believe. No crying he makes. Jesus was born in the same way that we were born, though conceived very differently. No, on the contrary, the Bible presents us with a very human Jesus. We're told in the Gospels, he went hungry, he was thirsty, he ate and drank, he got tired, he rested, he slept, he laughed, he cried, he got angry. Anybody here a bit like that? Even after his death and resurrection, the physical, material reality of his existence was very evident to his disciples who touched him, who spoke with him, who ate with him in his risen body. If he was not physical and materially real, why else would he have invited Doubting Thomas to put his finger on the nail prints in his hands or the hole in his side? Or if he was not really there in a human body, why else would he have cooked and eaten breakfast with his disciples by the lakeside. He was risen with a new body, but it was a physical human body all the same. So I want to examine briefly two aspects of the humanity of Jesus this morning. We're going to look uh, very quickly at the temptations to which he was subjected, just like every one of us, and also the emotions he experienced like ourselves. Let's start with the temptations of Jesus. We're going to look at some Bible verses that tell us about this. The book of Hebrews is notably the the, uh, part of the Bible that uh, speaks very much about Jesus being like us. And we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, Jesus had to be made like his brothers, 
fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted he knew and he knows fully what it is like to be human and to be subject to temptation we read this in hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 for we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we were or just as we are yet he did not sin we have a high priest in jesus who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet he did not sin friends you only have to think about the things that tempt you most and they might be even the most hideous things that tempt you and say to yourself jesus knows what that's like the gospels matthew mark and luke show us jesus being tempted by satan in the wilderness and there we have proof that Jesus faced great personal struggle at moments in his life when he had to make right decisions and right choices. To overcome temptation and defeat the powers of darkness, he had to engage his mind and his will in the most terrible spiritual battles any man has ever experienced, just in the same way that we have to engage our mind and will when temptation comes our way. And when Jesus answered the temptations of Satan, every time Satan came along and proposed something wonderful that he would give to Jesus, how did Jesus counter it? He quoted scripture. And I mention that simply to emphasize the fact that we need to know the Bible. Because it's our only defense against the enemy. It's the sword of the Spirit. Jesus knew that and he used that sword. It's most especially in the Garden of Gethsemane that we see the struggles of the man Jesus. Clearly on that occasion, the prospect of his imminent sin-bearing crucifixion caused him extreme anguish. When he exclaims, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. He's not pretending. There we hear the heartfelt cry that any one of us here would make from the depths of our souls if we were in the same circumstances. Shrinking in horror before the death that awaits him, what temptation must have gripped Jesus then to refuse what his father had sent him to do? And there in that garden, we have such a powerful glimpse of the reality of his humanness. There's no appearance, no mere pretense. This is the real thing. The Bible tells us Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are and that he himself suffered when he was tempted. And the word that's translated in our Bibles, tempted, is a Greek word that also means put to trial. So Jesus was not only tempted in every way that we are, but he also suffered trials in every way that we are. Jesus never gave in, he never sinned, although the struggle was real. And when we think of temptation in these terms, that Jesus faced it in exactly the same way as we do, we understand that temptation in itself is not sin. Because Jesus never sinned, but he did face temptation. 
It's only when we yield to temptation that it becomes sin. Do you know that old hymn? We're never sing it anymore. Yield not to temptation. What wonderful sentiment is expressed in some of those hymns. I wish some of our uh, more contemporary uh, songwriters would be able to take words like that uh, and reform them for today's generation. Yield not to temptation. It's not temptation that's sin. It's when we yield to it. And Jesus knew all about that. And he knows exactly what it's like to face it. But because he always successfully resisted temptation, he's able to help us overcome it as well. Which is when those, when those moments of temptation come to us, we need to cry out to him for help because we're too weak to face it ourselves. We need the help of, of him who faced it himself and overcame. And that's an, a tremendous encouragement and blessing that we have when we read verses such as we have in Hebrews. But what about the emotions of Jesus? How did he feel at certain times in his life? Well, let me uh, read to you something that a famous American theologian called B.B. Warfield wrote in an essay called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. He wrote this, Compassion and indignation rise together in his soul, in Jesus' soul. Joy and sorrow meet in his heart and kiss each other. Not mere joy, but exultation. Not mere irritated annoyance, but raging indignation. Not mere passing pity, but the deepest movements of compassion and love. Not mere surface distress, but an exceeding sorrow, even unto death. These are the emotions Jesus experienced and expressed, and we read about them in the Gospels. We see his joy. But we see his anger. When he tipped over the tables of the moneylenders in the temple, he doesn't just trip up to them very lightly and say, come on, guys, I think you need to move on. He violently overthrew them. Righteous anger. Compassion and love. Distress and sorrow. And it's perhaps on the occasions when Jesus encounters human suffering or the consequences of sin in the world, that his emotions are most evident. It always strikes me when you read the story of Lazarus, and just before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Do you remember that passage in John chapter 11 when he is told about Lazarus being in the tomb? We're told at that moment that Jesus became angry. Why was he angry? Was he angry with Lazarus for dying? Why did he die on me? He was angry against sin and the fact that sin had produced death and that his friend Lazarus had gone through the gates of death. That's why he was angry. Real anger, he experienced that. And it's particularly faced with human suffering that this kind of emotion comes out in Jesus. He weeps at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He sighs and weeps with compassion over the rebellious city of Jerusalem. He lashes out at the greedy, unscrupulous money changers in the temple. And he lambasts the Pharisees for the hypocrisy by which they lay impossible burdens on the people. And yet they easily excuse their own feelings. Such display of human emotion by Jesus proves beyond a doubt that he was truly a flesh and blood human being. Of course, 
He was divine too. His humanity and divinity coexist perfectly in a way that our minds cannot fully comprehend, but we can state without fear of contradiction that Jesus was fully and wholly human. Now, why is that fact so important to us? Let me try to answer that question with a simple illustration from uh, personal experience. On the 31st of August, 1990, at the end of a very traumatic pregnancy, our second child, a daughter, was still born. We had a little son uh, who was just over uh, 18 months at that time. But our little daughter was born, stillborn. And we were grief-stricken, even though we knew that had she lived, our daughter would have been severely disabled because she had a very serious illness during the pregnancy. The loss of a stillborn or miscarried child is a deep sorrow for the grieving parents that onlooking friends and family find it difficult to understand because they never knew that child. They didn't have the experience of that child growing in the womb. And for them, uh, it's as if the child had never existed. And that's understandable. Now, our friends who were Christians for the most part wanted to console us. Yet, in spite of the best intentions in the world, some of their comments hurt more than healed. You're still young. You'll have other children. Be thankful you already have a first child who's strong and healthy. Well meant, true statements. But in our hearts, we were saying to ourselves, do you think that makes it any easier to cope with the loss of a baby that we wanted so much? Someone said, don't be sad. God is with you. And that sounded to us like as if a Christian should never experience sorrow or never express sadness because we should not be normal human beings like everybody else. I know what you're going through, many others said, but we knew actually that they hadn't experienced the same kind of thing and they didn't know what we were going through. Then one day we had a visit at the hospital from a retired minister who knew uh, us quite well and who we knew had experienced very deep uh, sorrow in his own life and had gone through many uh, bitter times of grief himself. He came gently towards us and with tears forming in his eyes simply said, I haven't been where you are today, but I want you to know I'm praying for you. Now, at that precise moment, at that very moment, the floodgates of heaven opened for us with torrents of healing, comfort, and peace. Why was that? Because we had heard these simple words of compassion from the mouth of a brother in Christ who had greatly suffered himself, but more than that, we knew that this brother was speaking on our behalf to the brother of brothers, to the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Dear friends, what a comfort it is to know that before the throne of the Most High God, a man stands and intercedes for us. The ascended Christ in all his glory, yes, but nonetheless a man who knows what it's like, what we have to go through. A man who knows perfectly who and what we are, who has experienced at first hand himself what it's like to walk 
this sin and sorrow-filled earth, a man who has suffered as we do and much more, and who opens his arms wide to console us in his loving embrace. That man is called Jesus, and he is our advocate, counsellor, comforter, brother, friend. So, Dear friend, whenever you feel let down by those closest to you and you wonder, how could they do that? Come and share your pain with the one who had a friend that said to his enemies, how much will you give me if I hand them over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Jesus knows what betrayal is like. And when no one, absolutely no one seems to understand the immensity of your sorrow and grief, run into the tender arms of Emmanuel, God with us, who in a dark, quiet garden, shortly before his turbulent death, cried out, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And when in times of trouble you find it so hard to accept a negative answer to your earnest prayers from your Father in heaven, you so much want him to say yes to what you've requested. Remember the one who asked that same Father, Abba, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. And his Father said, no. No. When in the depths of your soul you feel so very much alone, then pour out your heart. In all honesty, tell him how you're feeling. To the one who cried all alone on a desolate, desolate, shameful cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when overcome with anguish, you say to yourself, nobody sees the depths of my despair. And that could well be true. Nobody. Remember him who many, many years ago said to believers entering a whirlwind of tribulation, I know your afflictions. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted and tested, he is able to help those who are being tempted and tested. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted and tested in every way, just as we are. Hebrews chapter 2 and chapter 4. And therefore, to finish, let me say, it is no vain, empty invitation Jesus makes when he beckons to us, saying, Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, if there are any of you here this morning who desperately need that touch from God, that understanding from your brother in heaven. Come for prayer ministry. Ask for intercession on behalf of yourself. There's no shame in it. It's an open invitation to God. Come to him. Come to him. Jesus will not turn you away.